we've been singing a one Christmas carol over and over and over, um, although we haven't heard it yet in this service. And that's O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. As we have gone through the season of Advent, the season of waiting, we have been going through all the different, uh, well, not all of them, but some of the different verses from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, saying what were the people of God waiting for and what is it that we're waiting for as well? The first verse we looked at was, O come, O come, Emmanuel. The second was, O come, Dayspring. And the third was, last week was, O come, Key of David. And each week we said that that first week, Emmanuel, means God with us. That Jesus is God with us. Each of these verses have a title in them that describe something about who Jesus is. So that first, O come, O come, Emmanuel, O come, Jesus, be with us. We know that you were born and we know that you are coming again. And so this hymn reminds us of that, reminds us of the, the, the joy of Christmas, as well as the hope for Christ's second coming that we can grasp onto in times of troubles. O come, day spring reminds us that Jesus is the day spring, the morning star, the, the beginning of a new day in history. It's the dawning of a new day when Jesus comes to earth. And that day will come. That's, it's sort of like a sun just peeking over the horizon, but one day that sun will rise over the sky when Christ comes again in his fullness to shine his glory upon the earth. And then last week, we learned about the key of David and, and learned that Jesus isn't just the key of David. He's the holder of the key of David, that he is the holder of the keys of God's kingdom with all authority, honor, and power, glory, and might that comes along with that. And so we can trust him as a, as a good and gracious king and live as citizens of that kingdom. This week, we're going to take a look at a verse that is often not sung. It's one of these verses that were actually added in quite recently um, in the in the 50s and 60s, there were a couple of verses added to the end, and this is one of them. And the reason that it's not sung is really interesting. As uh, Angela and Alicia sing this verse for us, try to guess why you think this verse is not often sung in churches today. Oh, come thou wisdom from on high. Did you catch exactly why you think maybe churches don't listen to this verse or, 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 or proclaim this verse very often in their worship? I'm going to read it. And if you didn't catch it the first time, it, I'll, I'll make it really obvious this time. O come thou wisdom from on high, who orders all things mightily, 
to us the path of knowledge show and teach us in her ways to go in her ways to go i think a number of churches look at this verse they say why is there this female pronoun used in this in this in this verse it sort of confuses and discombobulates them and then they say well we're just not going to sing it because of this because they say we can't refer to jesus as a her jesus isn't a her jesus is a him and scripture says says he's a him and and so it just sort of discombobulates short circuits everything however uh i think that betrays a, a lack of knowledge of the old testament and um and a lack of knowledge about how a theme in the Old Testament is used within the New Testament and applied to Jesus himself. Now, there's a couple of things that we need to pay attention to before I really get into this. Now, number one is this idea of wisdom. This verse of the of the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is, is, is connecting wisdom to Jesus and basically saying that Jesus is wisdom. This is who he is. And so if, if wisdom is who he, who he is, how is it that this verse can also describe Jesus with this female pronoun in her ways to go, not in his ways to go? Well, wisdom in scripture, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, just, just grammatically, um, has a, it, it's a feminine noun. It's a grammatically feminine noun. Now, if you've ever taken French in school, or if you've taken other languages, um, languages other than English, and I think English has a little bit of this, but it's not to the same extent as other languages. Other languages um, have a very uh, uh, very complex and strict uh, sense of, of genderedness within within the language for nouns and adjectives and um, and and all of that. But you can have a masculine word or a feminine word or a neutral word that are all gendered that don't actually mean that that word is meant for only males or meant for only females or only meant for, for both sexes. Or pardon me, both genders. Putting those genders into the words is a way of sort of linguistically categorizing the words and making the language just makes sense and, and a little bit easier to follow, particularly if you're writing it, but also when you're speaking it, you can sort of follow the train of thought just a little bit easier. This is, I think, one of the things that make makes English just really difficult to learn. English is one of the hardest languages in the world to learn, which we don't think of because we were born into any, an English culture, but speak to anyone from any other part of the world, and it's a very confusing language, in part because it's missing these gendered links within the language. Now, again, those gendered links don't actually mean that something corresponds to that gender. So you can have something that often does, like names, if you go through, um, if you go through scripture, a male will always have a male gendered name and a female will always have a female gendered name and that's just how the language works. But objects or concepts can be all over the map. And this is what we're seeing with wisdom. Wisdom it's a female gendered word, but that doesn't mean that, that wisdom is only for females, right? This is the second point. Wisdom is for everyone. 
it's not just for males. It's not just for females. It's not for men or women or, or just, or kids. It's not meant for, it's not meant for one small group of people. It's meant for everyone. And so the genderedness of the language actually doesn't mean what we might think it means if we were to just look at that and say, well, here's, here's what's going on. It's no, 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 no. Wisdom is meant for everyone. But the authors of scripture, and one of whom is God, the primary author who, who worked through human beings as his instruments of, of writing the text, took our, took our languages, took Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, and used them to communicate his truth. And one of the things that he does, and one of the things the authors of the text do with wisdom is use this the, this um, genderedness of this word wisdom to their advantage to try to describe for us so that we really grasp it what wisdom is and how we can live out wisdom and even more than that they do it in a way that just explodes the bigotry and patriarchy of of the ancient world and indeed for our world as well, our, our days today. The Old Testament often represents wisdom in feminine terms, as describing it metaphorically as a woman. If you've ever read Proverbs, Proverbs does this throughout the first seven, through the, throughout the first nine chapters or so, and then it returns to it again and again throughout the rest of the book, that wisdom is 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 described in, in, in really feminine, wifely terms. Uh, for example, let's take a look at, uh, at a couple of examples. Proverbs chapter 3. In Proverbs chapter 3, let's start in verse 13. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver, and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed." If you've ever been to a wedding, you might have heard that passage referring, referred to as sort of, or, or maybe in Valentine's Day cards or something like that. You might, this, you, you can see this referring to women in particular, but that's not the point. This isn't just a passage for just women. This is a passage for men as well. And what does it say? It says, wisdom is like this. She is like this. She is like this. She is like this. But why the she? I think part of what is happening is that um, the the author of Proverbs is using this female gendering of the Hebrew, Hebrew world to build a metaphor for what wisdom is like and building this subversive line trying to teach men not just about wisdom but how to respect women and how to listen to women, particularly women who are wise. And in, in other parts of Proverbs, 
describes folly in feminine terms as well. Uh, Proverbs is, is, is written by Solomon to his sons, and it, it says that pretty clearly in the, it, throughout the book, actually. So if you go through it, you can actually see oftentimes wisdom is a, is a woman, and it's, and it's positive, 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 and then all of a sudden it will come out as, okay, folly is also like a woman. And so you have to sort of look through the lines and say, okay, this isn't actually about men and women. This is about discerning wisdom from foolishness, and there's a metaphor at work here. But that metaphor works to not just give discernment to the reader, it also works to recalibrate the reader to think about men and women in, in sort of new ways. It introduces them to wisdom as a woman who must be listened to. That's a, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. But again, it's not about male and female. It's building a metaphor that will teach us to think in new ways. Proverbs invites the male reader of this text to follow the womanly advice of wisdom and also to find a wife who embodies wisdom. But that does not mean that then... Uh, that wisdom is just for men, right? Or that women shouldn't find a wise man to marry. Actually, quite the contrary. But understand the text. It was written by a man to a man um, in, its, in its primary form, and then we get to read it as God's word, and it will teach us all sorts of things about the world, but primarily about wisdom. So we have to sort of look past some of these metaphors. I know I'm, I'm sort of sticking on this, but I think it's important. Sometimes we just get caught up on these metaphors and we can't see past them. Our culture especially gets caught up in really clear labels and we don't seem to care how ancient language works, let alone how the Bible works, how it actually how all of the pieces fit together. And we really should. Again and again, Proverbs says to heed wisdom. Listen and then do it. And the book of James, actually, the epistle of James, says the same thing. If you hear God's word and don't do what it says, you're a fool, is what it says. God's word is filled with wisdom. If we follow it, we are wise. If we don't follow it, we're fools. Again and again, we're told this. Now, why is this theme of wisdom important for Christmas? Let's take a look at Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. Verse 22. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water before the mountains were settled in place before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world, 
or its fields or any of the dust of the earth. I was there when he set the heavens in pl to place, when he marked out the horizons on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind, in, hum in, in, in humanity. This is a passage that is describing from wisdom's perspective what wisdom was up to at the beginning of the world. And you notice that he uses this language of brought forth and birth. Um, this is not creating in the sense that we might think of creating. So wisdom is not saying God created me, but that something obviously happened that was more akin to a giving of birth at some point. Um, and, and it's left in, it's left as a mystery that we don't get to know, but it's making an overarching point that wisdom isn't created. It simply is and has been and will be. Wisdom is from the beginning was there present during God's process of creation and is still present and active today. And all these ways that wisdom is spoken of in this passage are very similar, uncannily similar to how Jesus is described in the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus is described as the firstborn over all creation, as eternal, who, uh, who all things are created by and through who is the image of the invisible God, who is the radiance of God's glory and power. All these things that wisdom actually, if you go through Proverbs, wisdom is described in the same sorts of ways. But even more than that, the New Testament goes out of its way to describe Jesus as God's wisdom. Jesus is God's wisdom. It's Jesus, to use the phrasing of this verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it's Jesus who orders things mightily. It's Jesus who, who shows us the path of wisdom, and it is Jesus who teaches us the way of wisdom by his life and his teaching, because Jesus is wisdom, made flesh and dwelling among us. Jesus is wisdom. We see this particularly clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. It says this to, to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were 
when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world, the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Two times in that passage, Jesus Christ is described as God's wisdom, as a wisdom from God. And in particular, we're told, if you go back a little bit, we're told, Jesus crucified, Christ crucified, is God's power and God's wisdom. If we want to know what power looks like in the world, what it looks like according to God's design, we are to look towards the cross and see the one crucified. And when we do, we see the most powerful person who has ever lived. Jesus Christ, the God-man. And if we want to know what wisdom looks like, all we have to do is look towards the cross and see the person on it. Wisdom incarnate. That person shows us God's power made perfect in weakness. And that person, even more than that, shares God's wisdom with us in his actions for our sake, as well as his teachings for our sake. Remember, the Great Commission... Uh, says very explicitly, go and uh, go and baptize people, make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. Jesus says, you are to teach everything that I have taught. Why? Because that teaching is for your good. It's for your good. If we compartmentalize our faith down to just the cross and only pay attention to the cross, we miss what it means to live as a Christian in this world. That is, the cross is the entryway. But we, when we enter it, we, we actually have to then explore the rest of the faith. Otherwise, we're just sort of, it's just sort of like walking into a house and sitting down in the doorway and saying, hey, look, I'm in the house. Well, it's like, okay, great. Have you seen the kitchen? Have you seen the living room? Have you seen the dining room? Have you seen the, the billions of bedrooms that God has prepared for his people? God says, Jesus said, I, like, go make disciples, teach them to obey. Obey his wisdom, his teachings for us, because he is wisdom and he shares his wisdom with us. And if we follow him, we are to listen to that wisdom. And if we don't follow it, scripture says we're fools, we're foolish. Wisdom then demands our obedience. Christ demands our obedience. Now, in a culture like ours, our culture hates obedience. And I don't think that's too strong of a phrasing. I think it hates obedience. I think our culture questions authority, except the authority of one, myself, 
it, we, our culture questions wisdom unless it's coming from us. It questions the experts unless you are an expert or you think you are in, in the thing that you're talking about. It questions everything except ourselves. Our culture teaches us that the only person that you can trust is you. And every other voice is either wrong or lying or just should never be trusted. This is called radical. This is this is part and parcel of, of something described as radical individual uh, individualism. Radical individualism, where we just go to the extreme of saying, "Well, I am the best, the most knowledgeable. The I'm the one that should have authority to make decisions because I always make the right decisions, and I'm the one who should be doing the th doing the things and and." should be the one that people go to and, you know, go on and on and on. It's all about us. It's all about me. But then when we come to scripture, we find that the things that we thought, well, you know, that our radical individualism says that what I think and feel are just more important than anything else. And my voice is more important than any other voice. And we come to the voice of scripture and scripture says, a hard no. No. Your voice is not the most important voice to be speaking into your life. Your thoughts are not the most important thoughts that have ever been thought. They're not. Scripture says, do you know whose voice and whose thoughts are more important than yours? God's. And particularly wisdom, God's wisdom, God's voice speaking to you should have more weight in your life than any other voice, including your own. Wisdom's voice should be more important. Christ's teaching should be more important. God should just be more important. And then everything else will fall in line. Because if we prioritize Christ, if we prioritize his teaching, if we prioritize the wisdom of God, and we listen to it, we put it into practice, do you know what's going to happen? It's going to make the rest of life begin to fit together. All those things that we deal with that maybe we're confused by, that we don't some things that we don't like, um, that it's all, all, all the, the hardships, the toil and the good times, the triumphs, they all begin to fit together when we're able to look at God's wisdom and say, Oh, this is what God is doing in the world. And Oh, this is how God wants me to live. This is what it means to flourish as a human being to to, 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 to walk along the path of knowledge and live in the way of wisdom. But we need to take ourselves off our little thrones and place Jesus on his throne in our hearts and totally recalibrate how we think about life. You know, in the pandemic, 
Maybe you have seen this and maybe you have felt this for yourself. That this pandemic, I think, has made people less loving and more judgmental. Or maybe it's just revealed to us that we were never as loving as we thought and way more judgmental than we thought that, or than we would, that we would admit. This, the, this actually, this entire pandemic has been a great revealer for a lot of things, particularly within the church. For us, what does wisdom say we should be living like? We should be loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Which means, which, which, you know, like notice, uh, doesn't actually, in, in, does, doesn't include us directly, right? Like, like it just in terms of priorities, it says, okay, love God and then love neighbor as you love yourself which we can overcomplexify and just make um just make so difficult in our own minds when it's actually really simple because you know if you if you're thirsty you get a drink if you're hungry you get some food okay great so how are you going to love your neighbor doing those two things god says you know love your love love me with all your heart soul mind and strength and then love your neighbor as yourself love your neighbor How how are you doing with those two things? Because if you want to do them well, you have to, you have to, you have to get over yourself and place God on his throne and learn how to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and allow that to overflow into your love for others. As As God, as you are reconciled to God with Christ, God will reconcile you to yourself to help you see who you actually are in his eyes so that you're able to love yourself as you worship him god does that so that it's a very quick transition to be able to loving others because you're able to see them as god sees them as as broken but dearly beloved as sinners in need of a savior as people who God has placed in your life to love and serve. This pandemic maybe has shown us that we don't do either of those two things very well. And God gives us an opportunity to repent, to recommit to loving him fully and to recommit to loving our neighbors fully. As we go into a second lockdown, I implore you, Wentworth, to do these two things. To love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. In those times when you get frustrated at people because maybe they don't follow lockdown rules, love God, love neighbor Begin by bringing it to God and then move towards, okay, based on how God sees this person, how can I react? If we see people not wearing masks, like there's a whole bunch of different things. If we see someone in need, if we know someone's in need, worship God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself.
But it's interesting, right? Because it takes wisdom <laughs> to bring it a bit full circle. And I think without genuine relationship with God, none of what I just said will make any sense. In our culture, the call to obedience, the call to worshiping God, then worshiping others, the just the call to take ourselves off the throne of our hearts and place something else in that spot to to submit to something other than our own thoughts or wants or whatever like that that sounds really strange and honestly a bit stupid unless you are in relationship genuine relationship with Jesus because our world thinks that God's wisdom is foolish the world thinks faith is a sign of weakness right now. But here is the good news for us. God's foolishness um, is, is wiser and his weakness is stronger than any human wisdom or strength could ever be. So I'd rather be, I'd rather follow God's foolishness um, because it will mean that I'll be wiser than how I could ever be on my own. I would rather live into God's weakness, r rather live into my weakness where God can make his, uh, can, can, can make his presence and power known in and through me than to try to live according to my own strength. Church, be fools for Christ. Be foolish for Jesus. God's wisdom seems like foolishness to the world. Well, even God's foolishness is wise. So live as fools for his kingdom. Listen to his word. Listen to Jesus and his teachings and put them into practice. This is why... I have spent so much time today in Proverbs in particular because Proverbs is chocked full of one-liners of wisdom and that, that, that take wisdom to be able to apply in our lives and that will teach us to, uh, to discern that application if we really pay attention to it. Now, if you've never read Proverbs, reading it straight through from f just through um, is is really like reading sort of one-liner poetry um, with, a, with a couple of stories interspersed or a couple of narratives interspersed. But here's the, here's the interesting thing that Jess and I learned in a devotional this week. Proverbs is 31 chapters, which are the number of days in, in all the months, either 30 or 31, either way. So here's the challenge that our devotional put to us and that I am putting to you for whatever day of the month that it is on that day, open it up to the corresponding chapter of Proverbs. So for example, today is December the 20th. So we'll open to Proverbs chapter 20 and then read through that one chapter until 
you sense that God has spoken clearly to you a piece of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Sometimes it doesn't happen right away. Sometimes you have to read that passage, that chapter of scripture, two or three or four times. But just start by saying, by asking God in prayer to reveal his wisdom for you today in this chapter, and then read through it and just watch the wisdom that God will share that you can apply on that day is just amazing. And I bet if you did this in the morning, God would give you wisdom to prepare you for the day ahead rather than just reflecting on the days that have passed if you do it in the evening. So let's say you opened up your Bible on January the 3rd. That would mean opening it up to Proverbs chapter 3 and doing that same thing, reading through the passage and just allowing God to speak one piece of wisdom, which, which is likely just one verse of the chapter. You could do this every single day of every month for two and a half years, and that's how long it would take for you to, to receive from God every verse within the book. Two and a half years. But I'm willing to bet God would teach you some of the lessons of wisdom in this book over and over and over again. This can provide you, as a starting point, uh, a good base for engaging scripture that will be a lifelong gift of wisdom that starts in Proverbs, but extends into the rest of scripture and will totally change your life. If you want to be a fool for Jesus, this is a great way to start and to allow wisdom to bring order to your life, to guide your path and to help you flourish in the way that God has prepared for us. Let's pray. Father, I, I ask that your spirit would push us forcefully to engaging your word, to reading it and to obeying it. Give us the ears to hear the call of obedience that your word gives us for the wisdom that you have, the wisdom that you've shared in scripture, the wisdom that you incarnated in Jesus. And Father, we know that Jesus is your wisdom and your power, that, 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 that Christ crucified is your wisdom and power even more. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us your wisdom, that you would help us to be obedient and servants of that wisdom, who hear your word and put it into practice. And Father, I pray that you would that you would um, use us in our weakness to do great things for your kingdom. Today, Father, and this week, I just ask that you would bring order to our lives, that you would make the paths for us clear, and that you would help us to flourish in your ways, in your ways of wisdom. Help us, Holy Spirit, to follow Jesus, we pray in your son's name. Amen.